So many of the kids that come through our residential programming are dealing with anxiety and depression, one, other, the both. Throughout the podcasts uh, in these past three years, guys have listened to me talk about my own kids, myself. It's, it's something that's, we all know someone, if it's not us, if it's not a direct family member, we're all very aware and uh, related to connected with someone who's got a struggle with depression or anxiety. And it's common enough that it starts to get watered down. I was thinking the other day, the term mental health still has a stigma to it. However, anxiety and depression is a legitimate mental health issue. We've talked in the past about, uh, and even this last episode with our guest, Dr. Watson, um, we talked in the past about how older generations are asking the younger generations to just toughen up, bootstrap it, buck up, plow through, get through it anyway. But yet our younger generations seem to be plagued by this anxiety and depression diagnosis. In the same way, I dare to say, that my generation, the Gen X boys, were uh, plagued with ADHD that did bridge into the millennial generation. It's a common, it's a very common diagnosis. What is it really? What is depression and anxiety really? Are they linked? Which of the treatments actually work? Is it enough to just say, come on, kiddo, let's get up and go volunteer? at the Humane Society. Is that really gonna deal with depression? And what about anxiety? And it's not just stage fright anxiety, it's full tilt, can't get out of bed, don't wanna face the world anxiety. What's causing it? Can we blame social media? This is the second in my ongoing series with Dr. Hans Watson. Uh, we'll do a brief intro, but you gotta go back and listen to the other shows that Dr. Watson and I have done. This is our third, but we are going to continue. This guy's a wealth of knowledge. So parents, thank you for joining me on another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, Colorado's number one parenting podcast. I really appreciate your time and support of this ongoing mission to help families, to help families save their kids, to help parents take their families back. My guest today is Dr. Hans Watson. Doctor, thanks once again for being on the show. Glad to have you as a reoccurring guest. It's good to see you again. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Let's jump right into the basic overview of who are you, dude, and uh, why are you talking? <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a physician who graduated medical school, and instead of choosing to do surgery or OBGYN or family med, I decided that psychiatry was where I could do the most good in my life. And uh, so I've, I've gone into it and never looked back. And I was blessed to be a kind of guy who not only learned all the medical stuff to do with psychiatry, but I also was blessed to be in one of the few remaining programs that still taught you to understand the unconscious mind, the psychodynamics, as they call it, behind things. And that's where I started realizing we had to discover what the why was behind mental health symptoms. It wasn't good enough to just say, here's the symptoms, now let's throw a pill at it. Instead, I wanted to know what's causing this. And I was blessed enough to be in a training program where there was expertise to give me a foundation 
Or even when they didn't know, they would say, I don't know, but I bet if we went to this resource, we could learn. And so by doing that, I was finally able to start seeing what was behind the curtain, if you will, and starting to discover what's causing this. And it's been wonderful for my patients as we have been able to start to address the actual causes of things instead of just saying, let's do a quick Band-Aid for the symptoms. Well, I also want to say you are one of our vets, and I want to thank you for your service. I do appreciate your service to this country. That's my pleasure. Thank you. So let's jump. Let's jump head first into this and uh, and talk about anxiety and depression. You want to split them apart? You want to keep them together? How do you want to discuss these two things that certainly appear extremely different in their signs and symptoms? Yet you and I both know. Um, there's some pretty significant brain chemistry taking place. So how do you want to discuss this? Let's, let's jump into anxiety first because it's a little more common. And oftentimes anxiety will precede depression. And so once we understand anxiety, it should make more sense why that can lead to depression. All right. So anxiety it is, we're going alphabetically. So I have a daughter who, who deals with anxiety and she has found herself at a couple of times in pure lockdown mode where she gets so anxious about, and is it, you know, doing the right thing or saying the right thing or being the right person is really what it starts to unravel as she does see a therapist about it. She has shown many of the things that I see a lot of the, the boys and girls in our program as, as children, as young as 12 years old, like their life grinds to a halt. It's not just, I'm nervous to go outside and see people. Life stops and it's debilitating. Now that's an extreme version of this, but is it, is it just a case of runaway nerves? What is this thing? So that's an excellent question. It, uh, you, you spur my memories back to, I'm often asked a question who do the therapists go to see for their therapy when they need it? And so you've brought my mind back to a memory of, I had a psychologist coming to me for psychotherapy at one point. And uh, the psychotherapist said, I'm struggling with anxiety. And I said, well, you clearly understand what anxiety is. You're also a psychotherapist, but could we go over it just to make sure we're on the same page? And of course, this, this wonderful patient said, of course we could. That, that makes perfect sense. It would be a good refresher. And so I began to explain the neurobiology and, and the psychotherapist stopped me and said, how do you know all of this? I've not learned any of this in training. And I said, I don't, I don't know. It's been hours and hours and, and, you know, it was probably four or 500 hours of just working through and reading books and stuff. And so when I explained to this this patient uh, who was a, who happened to be a psychologist, I s- said, you know, it comes back to the two major parts of the brain that most people who've heard me talk before are going to know. I'm simplifying, but the vast majority of this happens in, you have the limbic system and specifically the amygdala, the part of the brain that its job is to recognize potential threats. And then you have the frontal lobe whose job is to analyze that potential threat and tell us if it's a realistic threat or not. Last time we used the example, every time you go outside, there is a statistical chance of lightning striking you. But it's so remote when it's a sunny day with no clouds that your frontal lobe should do that analysis and and say, 
Today, it's not a real risk at this time of lightning. And then after doing that a lot of times, that limbic system or that amygdala part of the brain starts to recognize there are no clouds and it's a sunny day. There's very little chance of lightning. We, we really don't have to worry about that potential threat. And it actually learns to distinguish, hey, there are billowing clouds. I hear thunder. Lightning is now a high threat. And then the frontal lobe says, you're right. We need to take cover. We need to get into a safe place to reduce that risk. So that's the foundation that is going to, we're going to build on in order to understand anxiety. So it sounds like what you're suggesting to me, a layman, is that the amygdala is um, hypersensitive. The amygdala is hypervigilant. There, there is a, the amygdala is in charge and it's, it, it's overanalyzing potential threats. It's, yes, its entire job is to scan the area for anything that could be a threat. And that's important to recognize because we all tell ourselves a little lie that leads to anxiety being able to overwhelm us. Now, the truth of the matter is the amygdala, and in my mind, the amygdala is a male. So forgive me if in your mind you have a female amygdala. I mean no disrespect to anybody, but this amygdala, his job is to say, hey, look over there to the left at one o'clock. That might be a threat. At three o'clock, there's another one. And right behind us, there's another one. Hey, frontal lobe, can you just tell me if any of those are threats so that I can move on with my day? Because the amygdala has an important secondary job. Its secondary job is to experience and generate emotions. And it will not go to its secondary job until it knows that its first job is done. So those people who want to experience joy and happiness and feeling connected to others and all those emotions that we seek in life, if you haven't answered the question to the amygdala saying, hey, that is not a threat because there's no clouds. We don't have to worry about lightning at this moment. This afternoon, if clouds build, we'll readdress that. And then it says, okay, thanks for the heads up. Hey, by the way, let's switch over to some good emotions here. Let's let Aaron and Hans enjoy each other's company and make a memory because it has been able to, to say my first job is completed. Those potential threats were analyzed. They are not realistic threats. And so now I can concentrate on the fun part of my job. Now, here's the part of that that's really important. If we believe the little lie that has become popular, which is when the amygdala tells you that there is a potential threat, sometimes we tell ourselves a little lie. And we tell ourselves that communication that the amygdala is doing, that means there is a real threat. But that is a little lie we tell ourselves because the amygdala does not do analysis. Its job is just to identify anything that might be a threat. It's not the smart part of our brain. The frontal lobe's job is the part of the brain that has to say that is a realistic threat and we should do something to reduce the risk or don't worry. It's such a remote chance. We don't have to worry about it right now. Let's go ahead and enjoy connecting with others. So this is like I'm as you're talking I'm writing down a list of questions everything which which we'll get to from are there drugs that shut down the amygdala specifically to what engages the amygdala and 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 
but but the the last thing you said before we get to those other ones are are we just not using our prefrontal cortex is it, are we just disengaging the pfc and everybody is just living in the amygdala so so uh, let, let's clarify a little bit the the prefrontal cortex is just a tiny part of the frontal cortex and there are other other parts, and so it yes is the simple answer, but it involves other parts of the cortex too. I'm sure there's some some uh, okay. neurology genius out there right now that's just shaking in their boots because they're saying it's more than the prefrontal. But <laughs> of the course. simple answer is yes. The frontal lobe it is not automatic for us to learn to engage the frontal lobe when we get the message potential threat that needs to be analyzed. That is part of learning and maturing. And in fact, that is one of the major keys to us doing the thing that we talked about last week, which is building resiliency, learning to right. not become overcome and, and overwhelmed when the amygdala sends the message, I need you to analyze a potential threat. Now, the key there is if you haven't learned to recognize the amygdala's communication, and you misinterpret that communication as we're in real danger, suddenly that changes how the world looks. We start associating danger with things that are not real danger. They just have a potential such as anytime you walk outside, there's a chance you're gonna get struck by lightning. Well, that could cause people who believe that falsehood to stop going outside so they're no longer connecting with their friends that like to go to the playground. They're no longer connecting with other people that like to take walks. You can just see how that could spiral. You know, there's there's also, I think this is where the kind of the, the, the cross-contamination shows up. There's people like me who think that getting struck by lightning is going to give me superpowers. <laughs> so rather than, than being able to sit with a kid who's dealing with anxiety there's a part of me that's like come on like everything is not dangerous like i'm i'm this far away from the cliff we can still come see the sights and we can go for a bike ride and we can do this hike and we can go swimming there's not and and look this is coming from a guy who is significantly scared of open water for a long time my phobia as a <laughs> child was fish and it took me years of swimming in a lake and going uh, um snorkeling that i was like i'm not in danger here like, what a great example. What a great example. Because what you just gave an example was the amygdala sent out a signal to you saying there is potential danger in the water. And you can think of all the ways. A fish, you know, as a child, you don't really have reality down completely. That's why we still enjoy cartoons and other things that are fantasy still. And so in your mind as a child, depending on how young you were, maybe there's a shark in that fresh water in the river that could come get you. Or maybe you you had somebody that you know that, that died drowning in the water. So there's all these potential threats. It's not until you, you experience it and do that analysis. Well, the key there is every time you swam in the water, if you had had me as your therapist, we would have sat down and I would have said, now, Aaron, Tell me what you were afraid of. And you would have explained to me, I was terrified of a shark trying to eat me in that freshwater lake. And then I would have said, okay, I need you to go. And this next part, here's what it's doing. I'm causing your frontal lobe to do analysis. And I would have said, please go research for me. And next time we meet, I want you to tell me how many freshwater shark species there are. 
And you would have gone away and, and come back and said, well, there's none in the state where I live. Oh, okay. So the chances of that being realistic are none. It would have been your answer. And now suddenly, can I go back to that? And every time your, your emotions start telling you I'm in danger, can you then activate your frontal lobe? Because all I have to say is, what did your research tell you? That there are no sharks in, in, in fresh water and, and that I don't have to worry about that. So we're dedicating this portion of the episode to Steven Spielberg in the movie Jaws, just so we're clear. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this brings me to my next question about how is this, what's the stimulus that feeds us? Because as far as fish were concerned, as a phobia, and the phobia got to the point where not sticking my hand in a goldfish bowl, that, that you know, because of a movie, because of that, uh, um, uh, that the unreasonable fear, right? The fear that's not being analyzed cannot be. But nowadays it seems that there's more feeding the fear than the comfort of reality. Like, wow, like is fun. this social media? Is this the fault of the news? Is this the, or, or are we just too stimulated? Well, you're, you're taking us straight into a wonderful part, which is, First, before I can explain that, I have to explain to you how the amygdala communicates to the frontal lobe. And then once you understand that, then I can answer your question. So with your permission, I will, I will address how it communicates first, and that will allow us to be able to explain why it gets worse and sometimes even more unreasonable if we misinterpret that it's telling us it's a real danger. Yeah, because I think this is the part that that the 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 first strategy that comes up is that parents want to limit potential overwhelm for yeah. their kids or potential in negative influencers. Good. But we could still miss it if we're not understanding the how this is happening. Yes, exactly. And so um, for jumping into how the amygdala communicates. Now, the amygdala, remember, that's in the limbic system, which is in the unconscious part of our brain. It, that's the part of our brain that controls our heart rate. It controls our breathing. It controls what emotions we feel. And all three of those are examples. You don't get to choose what emotion you feel. Otherwise, nobody would choose sadness. Nobody would choose to feel rejected. You don't get to choose whether your heart beats or not. Thank goodness, because otherwise, every time we fell asleep, we would be in danger of dying. And same thing with breathing. So this is a part of the brain that is not conscious. So by definition, it can't just talk to the frontal lobe. Otherwise, we'd be aware of it and it wouldn't be unconscious. So it has to communicate through other means. It can't pass notes. It doesn't have eyes and, and hands to write notes to each other. So what does it do? It's located right next to the brainstem. And so a real easy way to think of this is I can't, I can't get you frontal lobe to automatically understand what I am, which is the amygdala, have identified as a potential threat. And since I'm in the unconscious, I just need to alert you that there are some potential threats here so that you will become aware of them. And this is how the amygdala sends its message. So it uses its only resource it has. It says, hey, you're not paying attention that you need to look at your, your surroundings. So I'm going to send a communication via physical symptoms. I'm going to make your heart beat a little faster because I'm right next to that nuclei that, that, that controls heartbeat. Same thing for breathing. 
And I'm right next to some major parts in the brain that control hormone release, specifically a little group of hormones we have nicknamed adrenaline. And so as you start thinking, if this amygdala uses a normal voice and says, hey, frontal lobe, um, could you check out the environment and just check out A, B, and C and see if those are, those are real threats or if we can go back to the party? And if it doesn't react, if we don't analyze that, then the, the amygdala goes, you must not have heard me. I'll, I'll speak up a little. And so it causes your heart to beat a little faster and your breathing to go a little faster and maybe dump a little more hormone, that adrenaline. Well, if you still aren't listening, it doesn't have a choice. It's got to start hollering because these are potential threats. They might be something we need to reduce the risk to. And so it starts yelling and it can get so bad to the point that you feel like you are in danger, aka a panic attack. And so people often say, wait a minute, a panic attack just means I didn't listen when he whispered and then the amygdala talked and then it spoke with a loud voice and then it even raised its voice a little and it wasn't until I yelled that I finally said, what is going on? What is the potential danger around me? Except we're probably telling ourselves the little lie and we're saying, what is the real danger I'm in? And oftentimes all we can do is run away because we haven't trained ourselves to stop and say, wait a minute, these physical symptoms do not represent real danger. They represent potential danger that needs to be analyzed. And that is the key to being able to manage anxiety is knowing when I feel the racing heart, the sweating palms, any of these symptoms that we call anxiety, it only means something needs to be analyzed. And I didn't listen when it was whispering, talking, or raising its voice. So my buddy, Tom Terwilliger and I, uh, we, we taught a process for a long time called Experience the Leap. And it's literally about the psychology of a person when they take a leap of faith, what has happened before, what's happening during, and what happens after. And we call this part the whisper, shout, and slap, right? Because your body <laughs> really will good. signal that something needs to change. And, and like you said, it will do it in a whisper. If you don't listen, it'll start shouting. And if you don't listen, a physical manifestation of the desire for change or relief will take place. And that's the slap. And you, you feel the sting of your body saying, I'm not doing this or enough is enough. Or I was, I've been working with this woman in Sweden who's, who's gone through this horrible, horrible breakup and she's just been paralyzed with not able to move and depression and everything. The other day I get an email from her and she's like, I'm effing done. I'm done. It's over. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. And that day she was out of the house. She was back at like, and they're all the things that were telling her to move to get her life back. It wasn't until she experienced a physical sensation where she would like, that's enough. And I see that in anxiety when the kid just, can't not doesn't and there's a difference between willingness and capability when yeah. someone's dealing with anxiety and depression and that's where as parents we really start to miss it is we think this is just a question of willingness you just need to listen you just need to do something you just and why can't you be willing to just get up anyway but when, when we're talking about mental health issues we're talking about, first of all, unreasonable 
Like this is yeah. something that reasonable people struggle with understanding is something that's going on is going on at an unreasonable level. And we have surpassed willingness. This is not a child who's not willing to get out of bed. At this point, they're not yeah. capable of it. And it feels like the slap has taken place. And why would they get up? How can they get up when the body is literally in a physical state of lockdown? And that is the point where uh, I would say that that person has reached a point and they're in such a habit that they no longer remember how to activate their frontal lobe and it it causes a depression of the neurons in the frontal lobe. And if you look at a functional MRI, what do we call people who have a depression of the neurons in the frontal lobe? We call them clinically depressed. And so what was the major thing that led to that person getting so overwhelmed that they had an excess of cortisol released to the point that now cortisol is a, is a hormone that makes it so that your neurons can experience a huge turbo boost of adrenaline and not be damaged. The problem is it's meant to, to only last for small amounts of time. And what happens when you keep avoiding the analysis of whether that was a real threat or only a potential threat. And I'm not saying it's their fault. Sometimes you haven't, you haven't ever confronted or been presented with this type of a situation. And it's, it's the job of a parent or a professional to help you learn how to analyze it and work through it. And if that, if that doesn't happen, well, then you can say, all right, I need to avoid it. Now, there are certain times that avoiding it is the best answer. You wouldn't want to go back into a, a toxic relationship or a destructive environment. However, what you teach that amygdala at that moment is that was a real threat. We should watch for anything that looks like that in any place in the future. Therefore, keep an eye out. And now we're back to our, our khakis and red shirt right. uh, example that we've used many times to where, yes, we were beat up by somebody with khakis and a red shirt before, but when we go into the big box store and the employee is wearing a khakis and a red shirt, if we haven't analyzed whether it was the khakis and red shirt or whether it was that abuser, we just might and oftentimes will assume that we are in danger because there's something that is similar to our abuser. So I'm starting to draw some parallels to human behavior, destructive, risky choices, right? I, I don't ever say there's no such thing as a bad choice. I mean, I, I don't say there's bad choices. I believe there's risky choices and there's good choices. But okay. bad, bad is an arguable point because yes. when someone is avoiding the big box store with employees who are wearing red shirts and khakis, because they have uh, experienced violence from someone wearing a red shirt and khakis in the past, that's not a bad choice. No. It's just a risky choice because it, it's becoming a limiting belief. It's reinforcing a conditioned pattern. It's not healing a trauma, et cetera, et cetera. However, with what you're saying, especially with, when we continually fall prey to the amygdala's over- hypervigilance of warning signs in the prefrontal cortex is not analyzing the real threat that there's a depressions of neurons in the frontal lobe and that's causing depression. Yes. I, I got a, I got a few questions and I know again, we're, we're yeah. oversimplifying things. Sure. But 
I, my question earlier about are there drugs that shut down the amygdala specifically, suddenly the choice of using drugs to shut down the amygdala makes total sense when you're just like, I, I mean, no wonder I smoked so much pot because yeah. suddenly I wasn't in danger of being left alone. I had a new group of friends. Life made sense to me. I was happy. Whereas when I was sober, I was lonely and sad. So but, this, And you're right on the short term, but the right, danger is because right. in the short term, we can find temporary relief uh, from using, using mind altering substances. The problem is, if we look at that, that is nothing less than chemical avoidance. And so we start training the amygdala that things that are not real threats to us were. And so now we're going to have that wow. altered sense of reality because the amygdala's whole job, his job, right. he doesn't, he, a lot of people think of the amygdala as over underactive. That's not accurate. What it is, is he does his job all the time. He doesn't need sleep. He's going all the time. The frontal lobe is the one who's supposed to make sense of this. And so that's why that's why you get woken up in the middle of the night because you hear a noise and the amygdala goes, Hey, we need to analyze the noise that just took place. Yes. Yes. Ah, so it doesn't shut down. So every time you use that mind-altering drug, you teach it we were in real danger right there. Even though we weren't, it makes it so that. We, A, practice our frontal lobe not activating, and yeah. practice makes permanent. And, and we, 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 we also have to, we have to remind families that when we're saying using a mind-altering substance, we're also talking about video games, pornography, cutting, food, sex. Like, mind-altering substances don't necessarily mean an external thing that's shutting down the inside. We're doing things on the inside that's shutting down the inside as well. I would agree with you. With my patients, I make a distinction um, because they are in the same category. But what I tell them is you have mind-altering substances and then you have distractions. Either way, you're doing the same thing of avoiding. And so that's that's more academic. The, The key here, though, is there is not a substance out there that can depress or dampen the amygdala without concurrently dampening the frontal lobe. So you actually stop the frontal lobe from being able to learn from these experiences whenever you do that. That's one way of saying that the addiction never allows the problem to go away. Whatever you're addicted to, mayonnaise, even if it's a distraction, if you're addicted to mayonnaise because it feels good in the moment, you don't think about, uh, uh, you know, being abandoned, abused or assaulted, you're, you're still not healing the trauma, big T or little T trauma. Or, or even if it's not a trauma, that potential risk that scared you because you said it was potential risk and you believed the little lie that we all tell ourselves, which that racing heart meant I was in real danger. And so you stop yourself from doing that analysis. A simple example would be if you are a little three-year-old child and a stranger comes up, stranger to you and says to your mom, hey, Jenny, it's great to see you and talks to the three-year-old like most healthy, uh, safe adults do and says, how are you doing, little Jimmy? And little Jimmy's doesn't know yet. It hasn't had enough life experience or analysis to know, is this stranger a threat? Then suddenly it's okay to hide behind the leg, but the parent's job at that point is to recognize they hid behind the leg and then say, you know, that's Mr. Jones. 
He's a good friend. He's safe. It's okay for you to talk with him, but you wouldn't be alone with Mr. Jones. Now, suddenly, that child's young mind has analyzed that and they've gained a little more experience. Well, after five, 10, or 15 of those experiences, the amygdala starts to say, hey, I recognize a trend. I may not be smart, but you tell me enough times. And then he starts saying, mom is not afraid of this stranger. Therefore, I don't need to be afraid of this stranger. And I'm with mom, who is my barometer to what is and isn't a threat right now. I'm okay. But you can see how that analysis Well, then you get to a 30-year-old adult. Most of them are not afraid when a stranger walks up and says, good morning, can I help you today? And they say, oh, yes, man in the khakis and red shirt. I know that you're not a stranger because I learned that when I was three and four years old, or excuse me, you're not a threat because I learned that when I was three and four years old, I'm looking for dish detergent. And then they can say aisle 33. (laughs) Okay, so now... Let's 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 summon bridge into depression Very because good. all of this is it, it like my own amygdala is like you're getting pretty like into your breathing's a little bit more shallow your heart rate's gone up Aaron how does this experience of this excitement hyper alertness brain analyzing your environment for a potential threat how does this lead to depression Very good very good so. Um, As we look at this, depression, first of all, is if we want to simplify it into something that we can conceptualize, it is we have done some damage to where our frontal lobe neurons, as well as some other parts of our brain, are sick. We can even see if it goes on long enough, we actually can see what we call atrophy, which means some of them actually die off and go away. Thank goodness we have extra neurons in the brain to where it doesn't, doesn't normally brain damage us. But that is the big picture here is depression means the frontal lobe is not working as much. And so the brain is so smart, it actually says, hey, there's not much work going going on here. Go ahead and send some of that blood to other parts of the brain or other parts of the body. We don't need it here right now. And so you actually on different imaging, such as spec scans and these fancy scans, you can actually see decreased blood flow to the frontal lobe and decreased activity in those neurons. So there are many different ways to cause this. Some people, it could be something like, hey, one of the ways that your brain, as well as the rest of your body, regulates itself in a very complex way, and I won't go into it, instead I'll just say it helps to regulate, is your thyroid hormone. So I had one young lady, a perfect story for this. One young lady came in to me. She was on an antidepressant and she said, I'm here because I saw my family med doctor and he suggested I come to you because he put me on an antidepressant. I don't feel any better and, and I want to turn up the antidepressant. And being me, I said, okay, well, I don't treat people unless I know why they're experiencing it. So I did a full evaluation. And wouldn't you know, she also said, Well, that's weird you're asking me that, but yes, I also, in an 80-degree room and cold, I've gained a bunch of weight, and I don't feel like I've changed my eating, and it does hurt when I brush my hair. Why do you ask? And I said, those are all the signs of a thyroid problem. Do me a favor. Go over to the lab and get a test, and so I sent her next door to the lab. She got her test, and then I saw her the next day, and I came back, and I said, your thyroid is way, way down. It's not working anymore. 
something we do sometimes see postpartum. This young lady had had a baby within the last six months. And so what did I do? I got her onto thyroid hormone replacement. It's a drug called Synthroid. I did not change her, her antidepressant at all. And what do you expect happened over the next six weeks? She wasn't cold anymore. Her hair started growing in thick again. Her, um, she also uh, started losing the weight when we got her on the right dose. And without changing her antidepressant, her depression completely resolved. So in this case, it's good that I didn't start tracking down and blaming her husband or blaming that brand new baby she had or blaming her breastfeeding. It's good that I said, why are your neurons depressed? Well, in this case, it's because she didn't have thyroid hormone. I replaced that. Done. I didn't change her antidepressant. And in fact, we stopped it a little bit later and her symptoms never came back. Is all depression, does, does anxiety always lead to depression? Is depression always a benefactor of an anxious, you know, of anxiety and its issues? Anxiety can lead to depression if we do not have times with a break. And so if somebody never learns to activate that frontal lobe, well, that means that you have, it's the equivalent of running your car, the engine at its max rev that it can do for an extended amount of time. Eventually, we're going to blow up the motor if you keep the right. car going like that. And so anxiety definitely can lead to depression and very, very often does. However, depression, we know that the frontal lobe is not working. One of the criteria to say, is this a, enough symptoms to diagnose depression is anxiety. And so I have never found a case of depression where I did not have people that were struggling more with anxiety than they normally would have. And so anxiety does not always cause depression, but I've never seen in my practice a depression that did not have anxiety as a symptom. So how, how does apathy become a, a condition of depression? How is the nothing matters, life's never going to get better? I mean, I know we're bridging into suicidal ideation with those yes. concepts, but we start to find a place where it's like, you know, and it's not just an, this is not an attitude. And again, this is where parents make a mistake. It's like, you know, quit having a bad attitude about everything. Quit, quit making everything worst case scenario. There is literally is it is it because the prefrontal cortex is just going well that'll be dangerous too or or, or it's not analyze sorry it's not analyzing the 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 completeness of of the scenario you know you say hey let's go to the humane society and and let's go let's go help animals that have nothing and nobody well i don't see how that would work there's a million ways that would work but does this is this the the thing that's saying your prefrontal cortex, your frontal lobes is not analyzing in a complete cycle what could actually make things better. It's just given up. Yeah. So one of the areas in our brain um, is the major motivation center. And what you've described that apathy is a lack of motivation. They've lost the, uh, the will. And, and then there's a second place in the brain that also has a major impact, and that this is called the somatomotor cortex, or some uh, somatomotor gyrus, depending on which uh, which term you're going to use. And what that means is this is the one that causes your muscles and your 
your um, body to be able to move and have energy. So we have two things there. We have one, the frontal lobe, the part that generates that electrical impulse that causes your, your muscles to activate. That's, that's sick. So if it needs a 20 milliamp electrical current to go to the bicep muscle to lift a dumbbell, what if it's sick and only producing 10 when it intended to produce 20? Can you see how you're going to have less energy? You're not going to be able to get out of bed. It's using almost all of its electricity that it's making just to keep your heart beating, your breathing, your hormones pumping. So now there's actually a physiologic reason that it gets harder to do everything. Tell me that that's not going to spiral into you becoming very, very frustrated and losing motivation to where it takes all your energy just to get up and do your basic items. You know, so, this, this, this talks about two things right here. This is what I'm talking about when we say when parents get upset, frustrated, which is understandable when your kid who's 14 years old has suddenly stopped going to school. They can't get out of bed. They haven't bathed in two weeks. Like they get, they're barely functioning. And it's the, the, the therapist has said depression and clinical depression, and you've tried meds. And now all of a sudden you're hearing about the thyroid. And now all of a sudden you're hearing about the somatomotor gyrus, which Doc, in 20 years, I have never heard of that. I have never that. And I run a treatment center. Like, like this is this is the thing is that this is why we have to move away from this is a bad attitude. This is about unwillingness. We are literally dealing with a neurophysiology reason for why this child cannot get out of bed and being angry and frustrated is something you got to do with your own therapist, not with your child. It's not going to help. In fact, it's going to create guilt and anxiety in your child, which is going to make all this worse. It's a reinforcer to be upset at your kid. Excuse me. Much of what you're talking about here, don't feel bad that you haven't heard about this. Many of my, the doctors and the therapists that come to that, they've never heard either. This is the kind of stuff, this is the whole reason that I actually had doctors saying to me, will you please produce a seminar that we can send our patients to learn this? And so we're actually in the middle of producing and recording these seminars for patients because What I'm teaching here, this isn't just some fly-by-night gimmick that we came up with. This is the, if you look at it, I have studied basically the equivalent of 360 days a year for the last 12 years to put all of this together. And this was hours of seeking and looking. I'm still that weird guy who reads a textbook before he goes to bed for fun. But the reason that I love it is... I'm able to come in to my patients and say to them, this is why it's happening. Therefore, this is why the treatment is. And my patients immediately go, that makes sense. I want to do your treatment instead of the the normal, just you're depressed and antidepressant moving on. You're depressed. Let's talk about it in therapy moving on. But instead, we're saying therapy should address this. Medications should address this. And then you as an individual, here's your part. I know it's not your fault. But here's what you're going to have to do to climb out of this yourself. And it's got to be that three-pronged approach. And if if a parent gets frustrated, that makes them normal. But what they should do then is get support of themselves through a therapist or somebody themselves because it's not fair to do this alone. If you're not trained like I am, you shouldn't have to do it alone. That's why we have therapists that can get out there and say, you're doing a good job as a parent. 
be patient. It's okay that you lost your temper today. That means that you're tired and you want so badly. And then they can help you to get to analyze what's going on with you because your amygdala is pinging saying, my child is spiraling and it hurts me. This is a real danger to the person I love. It's okay then to say to a therapist, how do I analyze this so that I don't make the damage worse? Because I've never met a parent who didn't want to do the right thing. It's just, it's not fair to them to say, you should be an expert at mental health and raising children and your job that you do and everything else that a parent does. And so that's, that's why I love what you just said there, which is, yes, they need to get into their own therapy, but not because there's something wrong, but because they need support themselves to be able to handle something that is neither their fault or the child's fault. And you're asking that child to put in the effort to recover, even though it's not their fault. It's an injustice. We're also, this is really unfortunate and it has to be said because I know, again, I got the voice of my parents in my head, my listeners, my listener parents. We're dealing with a industry, the mental health industry and how insurance companies work. That when our kids are suffering to the point of feeling suicidal, they go to a hospital. I can, as someone who currently does not have a teenage child, I can tell you the drugs that their kid is going to get prescribed in those hospitals. Yes. Right? Because it's the same thing. I will tell you now, none of them are dealing with the depression of neurons in the frontal lobes that is that has essentially making the somatic motor cortex sick. None of them are. These are band-aids, these are crutches, and these are the things that insurance companies are willing to pay for. So when a parent is listening to this podcast and then they go to their therapist and say, can you tell me about my kid's somato- somatomotor gyrus? And the therapist is like, the what now? And, Which is and, going to be the majority. Right. And then they get their kids in the hospital and they said, can, can we talk about the depressions of neurons in the frontal lobes and the somatomotor gyrus? The nurses and the doctors, they're going to go, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give your kid Lamigdol and we're going to send him home in two days because the insurance money's cut off. Like, like this is what parents are having to deal with. So with that being said, we got to do two things as we're wrapping around the corner. Okay. What do parents do with the information they have from this podcast? How do they now start to address this depression and anxiety thing, understanding that it's the amygdala, the depression of neurons in the prefrontal lobe, and the somatomotor gyrus? Like These are not common understandings. This is now a parent who's listening to Beyond Risk and Back going, okay, so now what? Okay, very good question. Well, the first one that that I'd like to, there are some meds that have a small chance of helping this. And for the most part, they're your antidepressants. Most people don't realize that antidepressants were named back in the day when we were just discovering them. The first antidepressant was actually a antibiotic that was hopeful to treat tuberculosis. And they noticed in these, in these sanatoriums where they had all the tuberculosis patients, they said, hey, the ones on this new testing antibiotic, they're happy, even though it didn't help with their, their tuberculosis, they're quite happy. <laughs> Thus was born the first antidepressant. Bunch of happy people with tuberculosis yes. in a sanatorium. That's incredible. Isn't that wild? But then what they did, we didn't know because we didn't have functional MRIs for years. 
What then happened was they started looking at it and they said, hey, if they take this class of medication, it helps their depression. It helps their mood. So it got the name antidepressant. But what we didn't understand at the time was these aren't treating depression because there's no magic in medicine. What they're treating are they actually help the neuronal functioning and specifically they do really well in the limbic center, excuse me, limbic system and the frontal lobe. They're limited how much they can do. I always tell people with an anxiety, you can get about 20% relief or 20% restoration of your neuronal function with an antidepressant. If you go to depression, sometimes we can jump up into the 30 to the 40% restoration of neuronal functioning. If I got to name the antidepressants, I would actually name them frontal lobe strengtheners. You, you kind of they think of them as like the premium gasoline for your engine, but we have to fix the engine. Otherwise it doesn't matter what gasoline we put in there. Therapy actually is shown now. And my, my personal opinion, after looking at many functional MRIs and treating many patients, you can get 70 to 80% improvement in your neuronal functioning in your frontal lobe with good therapy. Now, there are two th types of therapy. I have all these different modalities, but I've made two categories of therapy. And the first category is it's bad, and it's called how was your week therapy. And this is where you come in, and the person says, how was your week, as an intention to get you talking, just to break the ice. And you don't ever leave complaining about the difficulties and adversity from your that week. Notice how you're not doing any analysis there. You're just venting, which is okay part of the time. The other part of therapy that is good is watching the scary movie therapy. Now, I, I spent an hour explaining this in the seminars that I'm producing, but um, watching the scary movie therapy, the gist of it is whatever your version of your scary movie is. For some people, that's getting beat up by a, by a man in khakis and a red shirt. For other people, that's being terribly embarrassed on stage and having my friends make fun of me. It can vary because life varies so much. But that's where we go in there and we talk about it and we share what it felt like to do this. This is why uh, a terribly terrible topic, but uh, how I help many people who have been uh, through rape and they're depressed. And the first way I, I help them is we start talking about that and, and it, how many times do people in the general community realize it's normal for my patients to tell me what it felt like to have their vagina torn as they were being raped. Now, why would they tell me the emotions? Because their frontal lobe is analyzing that and it's the first time they can then say, I'm in a room with Dr. Watson who is a male. He is not a threat to me, just the opposite. He is perfectly professional. He has never done anything to threaten me. Maybe all males aren't a threat to me. That's the first time that type of analysis enters in. And as they keep doing that, even if it's over 20 sessions with me, that's 20 times of them doing that analysis. So parents that are looking, you've got to find a therapist who is not going to just say, how was your week and let the person complain. Instead, they're going to go in and say, yes, your week was difficult. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about your contribution. Let's do a reality check if that was a real threat 
or if this is just another situation where a person's wearing khakis and a red shirt. That type of therapy is harder to find. In fact, uh, um, we're finishing up producing right now a video on, our, on my website because I've had so many people say, how do I find that therapist? And so they go on and they watch our, our video that explains how University Elite works. And at the end, um, within the next month, we'll be producing. And we're going to share our assessment so that you can do your own assessment on your mental health provider and see if they actually have the expertise to be able to handle uh, light cases, medium cases, or the severe cases. And you'll know in your case, are you a severe case? You're the best judge. You're living that life. And so those are some of the things I'm putting out simply because they don't exist. And sadly, many parents start to believe the false, the false belief that it's impossible for me to get better. I'm too gone. Or my child is defective. Or uh, you know, uh, it shows that I'm weak if I seek mental health. These are these false beliefs that I specifically address. And I can't believe how many people that I share that assessment with, they come out and they actually say, doc, I finally found a good person because we're not, we're not, we don't hold licenses in every state. So we can't be in all 50 states, but instead they'll say, thank you so much. I finally found somebody who can work to my level they understand. And so that would be, uh, it make, makes me feel a little pressure to get that out to the public a little quicker, now, doesn't it? <laughs> Good. Yeah, well, definitely. So, so let's do this as we wrap to the end here. How, how are parents going to find you? Let's get, let's get, let's get your web and, you know, fab five social media links to them and everything. So I, I'm a, you can find me, um, everything's under universityelite.com. We're on Facebook and we're also, um, we're on Twitter, uh, and, and we're com- currently trying to ramp all that up, uh, trying to do seven things at once. The goal is going to be, we're going to try to produce as much of this free content as we can over the next, uh, it's just screaming out. I've been, I've been recording, uh, uh, 10 to 12 hours a day for the last few weeks, trying to get this out because I just have parents who are saying, please, I need help. And, and some of the parents, it's for themselves. Yeah, And so I'm doing everything I can, but that website, as they look at this, as they continue to watch it, you're going to just see uh, content coming out, uh, uh, tons of it. But uh, I only have so many hours in a day before I'm flat, uh, worn out, and, and I'm going all I can. Great. Well, universityelite.com, Dr. Hans Watson. Uh, he is and will be a reoccurring guest. And I think, parents, you're understanding why. Like, he's just able to break it down to the bare bones. And that's exactly what we need. And not only to get the basics, but to learn something new each time. So, Dr. Watson, we will be talking again in a week. And uh, thank you very much again for this. Thanks for being a guest. It's my pleasure. All right, parents. The depression of the neurons in the frontal lobe uh, make the somatic motor gyrus or the somatic motor cortex sick. And this is, my God, like go back and listen to this again if you have to. The point being is that there, this is not an attitude problem. Anxiety and depression is not about an attitude problem. And the worst mistake I had made over the years of working with children with anxiety and depression is trying to motivate them out of it. There is a threefold therapeutic process, meds, therapy, physical aspect. 
We have to look at good diet. We have to look at how the sleep patterns are happening. We have to look at, there is so much more going on here because as Dr. Watson was saying, the brain is not feeling well anymore. And when we are not feeling well, when our body is sick with a cold or flu, we lay down. We, our body says, stop moving, stop walking around, stop trying to do things. I need to get better. And unfortunately, doing that through this process doesn't help because we're not dealing with that direct thing that made the body, the amygdala say, danger Will Robinson in the first place. So that has to be an aspect. Parents, you have to take care of yourselves first your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, you will be able to access your own prefrontal cortex and do your best work with our children. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing Beyond Risk and Back. Please go to iTunes and leave a review. It really does help get this information into the hands of other people who need the same type of support that you're getting by listening to Beyond Risk and Back. If you are wondering if your child needs residential treatment care, you can go to firemountainprograms.com and fill out the assessment form. Our intake specialist will contact you and we will work on it with you. We will work on this together. And if your child doesn't need treatment, we'll tell you. And if they need it somewhere else, we'll tell you. And if Fire Mountain's the best place for your kid, we'll tell you that too. If you are wondering if you can have one-on-one -on -one coaching with me and your family, the answer is yes. Go to firemountainprograms.com slash coaching and you can check out my prices and more information there. Until next time, thank you to my guest, Dr. Hans Watson at universityelite.com. And parents, we'll see you again in one week. Take care now.